Hello, and welcome to the Work That Works podcast. I'm your host, Charlene Theodore. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge that I'm recording this episode from the Dish with One Spoon territory. I'm grateful to the original owners for taking care of this land, and I recognize the treaties that govern it. Knowing that our listeners span the country and are tuning in from other areas with their own treaties and unceded territories, I encourage you to continue learning more about the Indigenous history in your community. It is important history and a story that continues. At Lawyers Financial, your satisfaction is our success. It's not that money doesn't matter. Financial, it's right there in our name. But we're not for profit. And that gives us the freedom to give you break-even pricing on insurance and investment solutions. And exclusive rates on home, auto, life, and disability insurance, just to name a few. At Lawyers Financial, we focus on you. So you can focus on your family, your firm, and your future. And that sounds like success by any measure. From truth comes transformation. How do powerful stories and lived experiences connect with robust research to inform inclusion strategies that will empower the achievements and advance the career goals of Black women, Indigenous women, and other racialized women in a workplace that works? I'm OBA President Charlene Theodore, and this is the Work That Works podcast. As a certified emotional intelligence and neuro life coach, my guest today, Carlin Persil, is empowering more women to lead, L-E-A-D, to live and engage authentically daily. As CEO of KDPM Consulting Group, Carlin is taking this mission even further, equipping employers with the inspiration, intelligence, and tools they need to cultivate a workplace culture where these big and bold dreams of women who lead can take root and come to fruition. Her passion for ensuring organizations have specific strategies that are designed through the lens of intersectionality and lived experience is one that I share. I'm looking forward to speaking with her about how organizational leaders can combine research with resourcefulness to address the lack of representation in our C-suites and boardrooms. Welcome, Carlin. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so before we get into strategies and specifics, I want you to share with your listeners much of what I already know about your own background, particularly your finance experience, and how that informs and motivates the work that you're now doing at KDPM. Yes, actually, you know, everything came from 20 plus years, I would say, working in the financial industry. I actually started my career in the Caribbean, in St. Lucia, working for, you know, the very same bank. And I know for a lot of folks, working 20 years and one industry yeah. is unheard of. Every time I tell folks that, especially young adults, they look at me like, 20 years? Yeah. And when I moved to Toronto, honestly, this was when I really started trying to find my place. I call it my battle to belong. And to be quite honest, Ashanine, when I first moved to Canada, I didn't know that this would lead me to actually creating and starting my own company. One of the, you know, the culture shocks I had was First, I felt the imposed identity of an immigrant and what it means to be an immigrant. And I realized that there was a subculture around that because I also met other Caribbean nationals or the bank I worked for was very international. We had operations in Latin America, Central America and, and North America as well. Lots of operations in the Caribbean. And we're all struggling with the same thing, whether folks wanted to hide the cultural you know, identity, things that really make them unique. I have some of my Latino 
colleagues saying like, you know, I need to get rid of my accent. I, I feel like it's getting in the way that's holding me back. And I also have my Caribbean folks saying, you know, I'm so afraid to raise my hand. People are going for coffee, even myself. I struggled to go for coffee. And, and I learned that there was a different culture that I needed to assimilate too. But with that came a lot of shame and guilt. And I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand what was behind that. And the more I, I, I got deeper into my career path and understanding the Canadian culture, but also understanding the Canadian workplace culture, that led me to totally disrupting everything I grew up with, what my parents taught me, what I learned growing up in the Caribbean. And through that, by trying to handle and deal with the shame and also understanding this was a collective experience, led me to create, and I call them lunch and grow sessions. And to be quite honest, I was like, here's what I discovered. You know, who wants to come along? And it became a thing. And, and folks started asking more questions. And long story short, I recognized that I wasn't the only one struggling to find my place to belong in the workplace. And there were others. And that led me to eventually, after 20 years, after not being fed, tired of advocating for myself and my gifts and my brilliance, that led me to taking a different career path and doing the work that I do today. So the other thing I was really excited to share with our listeners is about some of the work that KDPM Consulting Group is doing in the way of data and research, specifically as it relates to workplaces in any sector, the legal profession and beyond. Can you tell us a little bit about your research, what you're studying, how it will be useful, and when can we expect it? Absolutely. Doing this work, one of the things that we noticed or recognized was as organizations are dismantling the systems of inequity, Black and other racialized folks are very exposed emotionally because there's a cost to being seen, Charlene, right? Organizations acknowledging the fact that they, A, never had an anti-racism strategy or an anti-Black racism strategy means that I have had to struggle and suffer for years without acknowledgement of my full human rights, or even in some cases, as my full humanity. So psychological safety was something that I have always been passionate about because I felt like I did not have that challenge of safety in the workplace. Going to HR, racially charged discrimination, I didn't have the language for it, Charlie. And we weren't even talking about white supremacy. We weren't talking about the impact of those systems on our lived experience in the workplace and in society at large. So I started diving deeper in what is psychological safety. And I'm going to use the definition actually by Dr. Timothy Clark, a social scientist. And he, his definition is like psychological safety. It's a condition where human beings feel included, safe to learn, safe to contribute, and safe to challenge the status quo. And again, all without the fear of being embarrassed, marginalized, or punished in some way. Now, hello, for me, I felt like I would lose my job if I spoke that or if I said that, hey, I don't feel safe. I don't feel like I'm included. I don't feel like I can bring my authentic self to work because inclusion, it's about being seen, heard, respected for who I am as a full human. So with the you know, psychological safety study, what we are hoping to understand from the lens of the Black experience and in phase one, we're focusing on Black women. Because misogynoir is still the elephant in the room. And for those of you who are hearing the term misogynoir for the first time, it's at the intersection of race and gender where, where Black women experience, I call it the third bind, where Black women experience both sexism and racism at the same time. A lot of it is invisible. And that impacts, you know, not just how we show up in the workplace, but it also impacts our career and success as well. So our study, what we will be looking at, Charlene, is through the lens of the Black experience, Black women, what are the barriers to inclusion safety? What are the barriers to learner safety? 
to contributor safety and to challenger safety. So for example, if I don't feel safe at work, is there a fair process? Is there a route that I can take where I will not be punished or feel further marginalized because of who I am? And what that looks like in an operationalized way, it looks like my HR understanding what racism is, understanding the historical context of stereotypes. And again, why saying something like, you know, I'm intimidated by you or I feel threatened by you. There's a lot of language that we don't have the privilege of using because we are in an unsafe environment. And if we do bring up those challenges in some cases, we are on the receiving end of white tears of being called a troublemaker. So what do we do? We conform, we adapt, and we go outside of the workplace, which again, there's an additional cost to us. And when you look at it through the lens of we're already being paid yes. less than yeah. white yeah. women, yeah. think about yeah. it, Charlene. It's a, it's a huge we, burden. It's a huge burden. So we're hoping in partnership with, you know, our researchers, Dr. Monique Herbert and Dr. Julie at York University to really analyze the data and to come up with an inclusive and a really wholesome report on what organizations need to do from a systemic, from a cultural, but also from a behavioral norms um, perspective as well in terms of really advancing, creating safety for Black employees. Well, there's a couple of reasons, Carlin, that I think that's so powerful. Number one, as our listeners will know, there's a couple things that we as a work that works community, we that are committed to changing the culture of our professions, know. Yeah. And one of those things is, you know, while, of course, while we are working and actively working to have diversity in leadership, more Black women, more racialized women, more Indigenous women, more people of color in leadership, the people who are in leadership right now, they know that they've committed to getting equality, diversity, and inclusion, right? I always say, if you have the power to hire, fire, or otherwise affect the lived experience of someone at work, doesn't matter what race you are, you have to get this right. It is just the cost of being the boss. That's whether you're in HR, whether you're a managing partner, whether you're a senior associate, right? That's got students working under you. Like this is the new responsibility. And I think that the work that you're doing really hammers that home. And the other thing that we always talk about on this show is the fact that these solutions, right, to get to where companies want to be, where law firms and in-house legal departments want to be, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. And so that you put language around it, right? You've put language that is really amplifying intersectionality, the third bind, and that that research is so focused is really a template for how to do these things right going forward. Exactly. And also, Charlene, the, the great thing is that whether you're looking at another you know, racial group or you're looking at sexuality, psychological safety for all will allow you to continue doing that work without having to go back and start over again. Because from an organizational structure perspective, you're now looking at inclusion safety, not just for the majority group, but you're looking at inclusion safety for all based on how to identify and not just the imposed identity of race, because that's also another, I guess you can say, trend I would like to disrupt, Charlene. A lot of organizations are looking at workplace culture or leadership change or organizational culture through the past and the history, and as we should. But the danger of a single story that we see, that I see, and I'm pretty sure you've seen it as well, there's a lot of work that is coming from our trauma. I should say solutions or strategies from it coming from our trauma. Again, this is where organizations have an opportunity to look at us in our full humanity, not just our trauma, 
And the perspective taken needs to come from, yes, from history, you have to understand, but ensure that you're not just looking at trauma and numbers and the underrepresentation, but you're also looking at what contributed to the overrepresentation of white skin and white leadership in the workplace. So there's also a flip in terms of how we are taking perspective and also looking at it through the lens of Black futurism. What does the future look like? If we want to retain Black excellence and professionals who would like to bring their full selves to work, I believe that organizations will really have to take a look at, you know, changing the workplace culture through those three perspective lenses to ensure that, you again, there's creating space for the full humanity and not just the very, you know, narrow definition of who we are through the imposed identity of race. The other thing that your work does is it highlights that the way that we've been doing things is giving us the exact opposite of what we want. So whether you're in the legal profession, you're in engineering, you're in tech, tech especially, I would think, you want diversity of voices, you want creative minds, you want to basically be able to set up an environment where people are safe, psychologically safe, they feel taken care of. And what you're saying is that that psychological safety means that you can raise your hand, you can disrupt when you see from your unique point of view and what you have to offer, there's a different way of doing things. There's a better way of doing things. Let's pilot that. And intentionally or just unconsciously or systemically forcing people to conform or keeping us isolated and out of leadership, you're squelching those ideas and you're not giving those ideas a chance to develop. And I think that's a really insightful way to look at it. Yes, absolutely. And in short term, psychological safety is a culture of rewarded vulnerability. Mm. Can you explain that a little? It's a rewarded vulnerability in the sense that, so for example, with Dr. Clark's, you know, four stages of psychological safety, like, so there's the inclusion safety where you feel seen, heard, and respected. So for me as a Black woman, if I don't feel seen, heard, and respected, like you said, I can raise my hand and say, you know, hey, HR, here's racial discrimination or maybe it's gender-based discrimination I went through. I want to challenge the status quo. Or it might be exactly what you said. Hey, I have a better way of doing this. I come with full of experience. I want to make a suggestion. I want to raise my hand. As a leader, you should be able to, again, if you're operating from a full inclusive leadership competency lens, which also includes anti-racism and anti-oppression, you should be able to read the room and say, okay, so Carmen's not raising a hand, but it has nothing to do because she doesn't have potential or she's not a top leader. From a cultural ethnic perspective, ha, let me understand that context. Before I assign that she's not top leadership material, she never sticks up, she never raises a hand. So there's opportunity and there's space for individuals to be innovative, to be vulnerable. And this is where you truly get the best ideas. And when we look at the future of work, especially with where we are right now, still in a pandemic, rewarded vulnerability, being innovative, saying the impact of our mental bandwidth and our capacity if managers create that psychological safety, then we won't have to pause. We won't have to disrupt our workday to teach or to train, but we'll just continue to learn in as part of our inclusive leadership culture. Got it. I love that concept. You know, the goal for this podcast was to get people who have really mastered some one aspect or one or more aspects that I consider to be really the key to sustainable evolution and change of workplace culture. And I love it as I'm doing, having these conversations and I hear people kind of echo each other and there's common threads. We had recently published our podcast with Noreen Campbell, who's lead counsel at TD Bank. And she gave a really helpful tip about that futuristic thinking. And what she said is when you're filling a job, let's say Carlin has left banking 
and she's been there for 20 years. When you're filling her job, what she recommended that you do is you don't only think about the skills that Carlin brought to the table, but you think about what do we need the future Carlin to do five years from now? What do we want our workplace to look like five years from now? And search for that person. So in order to avoid replicating the same model over and over and over. Yes, absolutely. Clearly, workplaces in our profession and in other professions are still guided, in spite of our best efforts, we're still guided by too narrow a vision of what a leader looks like. So given your experience, not just in finance, but working across corporate Canada in consulting, how is that inhibiting women's, particularly Black, Indigenous women's, and racialized women's rise to leadership positions in the workplace? I think it was last year I got that aha moment, you know, because there was a, a time when I did blame myself for not raising my hand and holding back and playing small and I'll not trimming big enough, it. right? But here's the aha moment I had, Charlene. Again, after the unfortunate murder of, of George Floyd, again, fueled by the system of white supremacy, I really had this aha moment because I was bone exhausted. I felt like that mental and emotional and spiritual exhaustion after I left the bank five years ago. And the aha moment that came to me was that sometimes it's really not about playing small. It's really about self-preservation because the violence that you feel going into a space with majority of whiteness is exhausting. It's exhausting. And I remember the moments of insomnia and crying myself to sleep and not even wanting to go to work. And you go back there and you recognize that, wait, Carlin, you shouldn't be beating up yourself. If anything, you were protecting yourself because I did not have enough for me to build up the mental and emotional capacity for me to raise my hand and the cost of whiteness at yet a higher level because it cost us something. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than any individual. Exactly. Exactly. So for me, with that recognition and that realization, it also led me to really taking a closer look at what's really holding us back and what's getting the one. Why aren't more women raising their hand? And part of it is that, but again, what we're really excited to find in the research also is what is getting in the way in terms of the challenge of safety. But one thing that we have seen, which there are other research that also speaks to that, is that racialized women, Black women, Indigenous women, are not receiving the same level of sponsorship and mentorship as white women do. And even if the numbers are still low for white women as well, we're not getting the strategic insights and guidance. It's more of a good job, Charlene. Yeah, you're doing great. Look at you. Oh, you're awesome. But then there's no real action behind it. I mean, I don't have the full answer in terms of why, but we do know the pay gap is one. Because again, the cost of leadership, you're, yes, you do have the title, but do you have real power? And is there economic power as well that comes with it? Will the pay gap be bridged? The other thing is the lack of psychological safety or the lack of having representation. And and, and I say that with the caveat that representation isn't the only answer. It's not, right? Well, it doesn't address the pay gap. It doesn't address the pay gap. It doesn't address white supremacy as a system. It does not address the overrepresentation of whiteness in the workplace. But what what I have seen and, and what we are seeing is that if organizations create incubators of inclusion and psychological safety, and it can look like specific programs for Black women and women of color. It can look like pairing them with specific sponsors, but also the sponsors need to be trained 
and anti-oppression and anti-Black racism because what we're hearing as well, especially for those who are part of ERGs or specific programs, that those executive sponsors are part of the problem, right? They are part of the problem because again, they're re-embedding the very same inclusive leadership strategies or maybe coaching techniques that they got from their executive coach who also happens to be a white person. Again, sometimes it's not intentional, but when you look at truly creating inclusive and psychologically safe workplaces, it begins with, with taking a look at the entire system, the entire decision-making points, and also asking yourself as an organization, if I want to bring Charlene in, did I do enough to ensure that she will have psychological safety? Will she be protected? And if she comes across whether any kind of challenge, right, when it comes to challenge of safety, is there fair process? Is there an opportunity for her to feel supported, for her to feel seen, for her to feel respected and valued for who she is? And honestly, a lot of organizations don't do that deep work, Charlene. Well, and because it's not about, like you said, representation is not enough. As I always say, you have to finish the thought. And so when you're going on that hiring boom and hiring queer people, Black people, Indigenous people, and intersections all in between, once they get there, they need to be able to be in an environment where they can flourish and do their best work, especially in law. Our industry is all about what we generate in our minds, legal arguments, creative ideas. The majority of people may not think of law as a creative industry, but it is. You use your intellect to change the landscape of your practice area and sometimes the country every day. And so it is really key, as you say, for again, not just to welcome them in, but to ensure that your workplace structures will allow them to thrive. So now we're going to get to a topic that I feel like we've been talking around and haven't named it, and I'm excited to talk about it. And it's the emotional tax. The reason why I like talking about the emotional tax is because. There is so much about the lived experience, and I'm just going to speak specifically of Black women at work, that it is very hard to put a name to. And emotional tax is one of the first times where I was like, that is what all of this is. Those two words, that encompasses so much. So you've referred in your work to a Catalyst report that I've also read on the emotional tax for people of color in Canada that's putting mental health and career prospects in jeopardy. I wasn't surprised by those findings. I want to know kind of how you felt about them and whether or not you think they've served as a wake-up call for employers. Ah, such a great question. And actually, I want to go back to something you said earlier around the fatigue when it comes to collecting data. We have all these great reports and data, the Catalyst report. When it came out, to be quite honest, I was very excited. I was still working at the bank. And I remember when I got the research, you know, that says, you know, over 53% or 50% of women of color, Black women, especially Asian women, Latino women experience emotional attacks and, and it's the cost of being on guard and it actually does impact our health and our career success. And I'll get again, time back to economic success. And for me, it's important to mention that because bridging the pay gap is also a part of creating psychological safety in the workplace. And what it did for me, Charlene, I felt seen. So you want to talk about inclusion safety? I was like, 
I'm not crazy. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> there is it's a like, word, there is a language. And Brandy, there is a phrase. Right. Yes. And it was just two words. Two words. And I was, I got those two words. Freedom. Carla gave me my whole <laughs> life. <laughs> Freedom. Oh my goodness. I was just like, oh, so that's what it's called. <laughs> I couldn't have thought of these two words all these years. I've been stressing about work, stressing about the job, stressing with how, about how I present myself, what people think of me, angry black woman stereotype. I just needed two words to really just unlock this feeling of validation. And exhale, right? And my, my bestie, uh, I call him my bestie, Dr. Brené Brown. Anyone who knows me knows that Brené Brown is one of my best friends, um, virtual best friends. Yeah, and I stalk her online. <laughs> and, you know, she said something that literally changed my life as well. Because when I was in that space of, okay, how do I bring vulnerability to the workplace? But how do I remove my armor so I'm not hurt or rejected when I am not fully seen and accepted for my full blackness, for my full Carlin. And she said that, you know, language can help us to feel seen and heard in a way that we have never been feel seen before. And that's what that report did for me. But also I want to go back to that fatigue around data because Another study, and you know what the missing gap is and why there is such a huge trust gap and why as part of this work around, you know, dismantling systems of oppression in the workplace is really about earning the trust of historically marginalized groups is because we have all this research and all those stats. You keep asking for business case and now that you have it, what has really changed? What has changed? So as much as it gave me this little bit of, of hope I felt seen. I was on that high because I'm like, well, here's the stats. And what do organizations do? They hire the best leaders. They have the best in decision-making seats, running, you know, different departments. We're going to solve these problems because what do businesses do, Charlene? They solve problems. They solve problems. But we're going to solve this problem because if innovation, right? We know that when we create a safe space, if managers, if great managers do their job well and people leaders do their job well, it means that they have a high psychological safety score. They're always being challenged. They're always creating inclusion safety. So which means that their team will be a very high performing team. That's how you get high performing teams. So for me, you know, there was this high and then there was this big letdown, which also told me that. So again, marginalized groups are still seen as not fully human. Society loves talking about our trauma, about numbers. And the other thing that I, again, I have a love-hate relationship with stats and numbers from a brain-based perspective, when we talk about numbers, we actually disconnect, we intellectualize. And Lisa Renee Hall found in a field trip, she talked about that a lot. She said that numbers and the stats and all those reports, what it does is that it gives us another avenue to intellectualize racism or sexism, whatever the ism is. And that creates a further empathy. It actually widens the empathy gap. Because numbers for the brain, you're not talking, you're not looking at human. This is why stories are important. This is why we need the qualitative data so that we can rehumanize. And for us, it's really about reclaiming our wholeness from the diffraction of who we are as human beings. So with the report, yes, I had hope. Then I went down. And what I'm really hoping that organizations will take all this data that we have already is to take it and to create the change within the workplace. Have conversations with those who have been impacted the most and ask, what do you need to feel seen and heard and respected? Is the fair process working for you? 
it working for the majority group means that you're being complicit. You're a gatekeeper for white supremacy culture in the workplace. And we have to be honest about that. And this is not to shame anybody or to create more guilt or to create more fear, but we also have to acknowledge the reality because if we don't, and you're still looking at me and saying, hey, you know, I made a statement, Black Lives Matter, but your actions and accountability, it doesn't match what you're saying, then again, that trust gap just keeps widening. So a lot of this work is not about making me feel better, but it's really asking organizations, where is your integrity? And are you willing to live that integrity out for all humans? Or are you still going to center whiteness or your majority group? And if you are, at least let folks know so Black folks are not going to unsafe workspaces anymore. Because I think we're getting to a point, Charlene White, I'm pretty sure you're there too, where we cannot make our health a side option. I'm just going to say one final thing. When we create more inclusive, for example, when we include the experiences and we look at Black excellence and Black brilliance and not just our trauma, I just wanted to remind folks that white folks benefit as well. Because right now with the exclusion of our experiences, the deficit is not only coming from one lens. We have folks on the receiving end as well who are not benefiting from fully understanding or even using the full inclusive leadership skills, or in some cases, benefiting from the lived experience of people who are different from them. Well, that's the tagline of this podcast. Work that works means work that works for everyone. If it doesn't work for everyone, it doesn't work for anyone. Whatever colloquial phrase you want to put, a rising tide raises all ships. If it works for the least marginalized among your staff and your stakeholders or your future staff, it will uplift and work for everyone. So I want to circle back to something that you said, because it is something that I've struggled with as a leader and workplace inclusion advocate, and that is the qualitative part of the work. We had an earlier episode with Lily Zhang that was really illuminating. Love, Lily. And I think in a way that's helpful for people that don't do this work full time, she talked about different types of EDI work, the strategists, and she talked also about the storytellers. And I want to talk about the storytelling piece. I will admit it's truly where I struggle. And here's why. Because here is how I have seen it play out unsuccessfully. I've spoken across the country about inclusion, about leadership, about anti-Black racism specifically. And I'm often asked to tell my story. People are looking, like you say, for trauma. And I choose not to. And here's why. Because in the past when I've done it, I'm at this point, a senior lawyer, a senior leader in the legal industry. And what I have found is when I share those stories, it does not create, again, this is my experience in the legal profession. I don't really see it moving the marker to creating systemic change in the profession. If I'm sharing with white audiences, I get treated a lot nicer. There's a lot of empathy for me. (laughs) But what does that do to the new lawyer that just got here from Trinidad or St. Lucia? and is in like a strip mall in Malton and trying to earn a living, not being able to get referrals from colleagues, being discriminated against from other opportunities because they may have a Caribbean accent. What does that do for that person? So my advocacy is about, because I come from a place of workplace lawyers and because I come from a place of workplace change, this is, like I say, if you have the power to hire, fire, or affect the lived experiences of anyone in your workplace, And so if you want to create these long-term sustainable businesses, these are the actual strategies that you need to use. 
And I tend not to talk about my stories, but I know in the work that you do that it is quite effective. So how do we avoid falling into that trap of trauma theater? Mm. Ah, so good. It's a lot. It's a- but this is just like, <laughs> we, like listeners, this is not on the list of questions. <laughs> Carlin and I are just having a conversation. You're welcome to join us. <laughs> I also struggled with that because if you look at my work history, you will not find any stories around my racial macroaggressions or any other while I was working on the bank. And that was partly because A, I did not have the language and also I did not have psychological safety. And I felt like I would be punished if I did share my story. And again, during that journey, what I learned from Brittany Brown is that not everyone have earned the right to hear your story. Because every time you share your story, it costs you something, Shirley. Your story is sacred. There is a lot of trauma theater that's going on. And this is why every time I speak around combating you know, anti-Black racism, I always share the, the, the perspective-taken lens, meaning that when you're looking at the past, you don't need my story for you to create change. This is what frustrates me. I see it. You don't need to hear about that one time in articling in this traumatic experience to look and open your eyes and see there are no virtually count them on one hand, people in leadership in this profession that look like me. That is the source of my struggle and my frustration. And because as people who do this work, we want to be effective and we want to be impactful. And you can be just as effective and impactful by not sharing the story. You get to choose because... No one knows what it costs you at the end of the day, Charlene, when you go home. Like when I'm doing this work, when I do choose to be vulnerable and open, if it calls one, it aligns and I share my story. At the end of the day, I'm on the couch. I can't move because I'm exhausted. But I cannot have every day like that day because it means that I have to get up tomorrow and continue to work. It's not going to be black until I die. I have to keep fighting until I die. So so it's important for me to prioritize my mental and emotional well-being. So for you, again, every single individual, you are the author, you are the narrator, you are the curator of your story, and you get to decide how you want to share your story and how you want to use it. So it's perfectly fine for you to use a different avenue and not use your story. And for anyone else, you know, who's listening, especially when I'm speaking to white folks and and especially those with power, you have have decision-making, you have the opportunity for you to influence systemic change. This is where you can transfer some of that privilege and some of that power by taking on those reports and those stories that we all know that are already existing and use that to create the change. This is where, you know, I I see white folks can be better allies because by interrupting and by ensuring that we don't need to keep doing the trauma theater, this is where great allyship can come in. And I honestly see a deficit in that area. We need more folks stepping up and saying, we already have the data, we already have the research. As the legal community, especially here in Canada, what can you be on setting precedents on? What can you be the trailblazer on? I mean, this is where I see those with with, with the leadership power can come and say, hey, let's change some of the systems to your point for that young kid who's coming in who has an accent, who do not look like, quote unquote, the leader in this legal space. What can we do to change the perception? We have to raise the leadership standard and we have to give leaders an opportunity to arise to that standard because your barometer for inclusion or for an inclusive culture 
should not be coming from the majority group. Because I hear a lot of organizations say, oh, our last inclusion survey, we got 90% or we got an, you know, nine or we got an eight. Of course, you will score high. Your majority group, which is whiteness, they are getting the benefit of psychological safety. They see themselves represented. So they feel included. They feel seen. That leadership job is attainable. I see someone who looks like me. The brain is constantly looking for safety. It's constantly looking for, am I safe here? Am I seen? Am I valued? Am I hurt? And that is innate. Think of it as the number of mental jumps that you have to do in a day, overriding this innate. Think of it as, it's almost like a compass and it's constantly searching for safety and it's navigating. So for Black employees, we're constantly overriding that. So that not for us to A, show up, for us to do the work twice as hard, manage the stereotypes that are being enforced or imposed on us every day. And I still have to go out home. And by the way, before I get home, I might encounter racial discrimination again on the subway, in the Uber I go into, the food I go and buy. Maybe I go went to the mall. Somebody will be following me around. It does not stop. So the workplace really, and I'm really hoping, Charlene, you know, with this amazing podcast you've been doing and the excellent tips and, 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 and people that you've had on there, that the legal profession here in Canada can really stand up and be on the right side of history by leading the charge on the systemic change we need to see in this field. I have a little bit of faith. I have a lot of faith, actually. Um, And this is from a confirmed cynic with the subject of anti-Black racism is concerned. But one of the great things about doing this work in the legal profession is I know the history of the profession. I know, even before I got into the profession from the 90s, how much work we've done collectively and we lawyers never see the work of justice and equality as being done. We may be on different sides politically. We may be literally on different sides on a case. But collectively as a profession, we have done so, so, so much work. So for me coming into the OBA presidency as this time, it was a privilege for so many reasons. But in terms of looking at kind of the mammoth task before you, but also kind of counting your blessings or your good fortune, I was met by a profession that had been doing the work, maybe had some diversity fatigue because they weren't necessarily getting the results they wanted, but they were open to hearing, this is how we can do this work that we're doing in a different way and actually be impactful. It wasn't a hard sell. (laughs) But I think the lesson that I would send to our traditional heteronormative white male leadership about using that tool of storytelling if you don't get it right, I think it poses the greatest risk of undermining all of your efforts in terms of workplace culture. There is a difference between self-led, self-funded, study by a Black female founder of a consulting group, working with academia and working with other Black women in a safe space to tell their lived experiences, and to turn that storytelling into qualitative and quantitative data to benefit everyone everywhere in workplaces as opposed to individual conversations where someone is kind of encouraged, which may mean forced to talk about the difficulties of existing in this time as a Black person in the workplace, where they're most certainly in legal workplaces, not in a collective of other Black people. How to use that storytelling as a tool and not unintentionally use it as a weapon. So that's a good segue into community. You know, I'm proud to be the president of the OBA. I'll just do a little personal disclosure. When the pandemic hit, 
among all of the other things that were weighing on me was just how were we going to do this and what would happen to our community of over 16,000 lawyers and judges and professors and law students who were now all of a sudden disconnected. And what really surprised me is that the circumstances brought on by the pandemic, everything going virtual, did the opposite. It didn't disconnect it, it connected us. We leaned into mental health, which is something that we've been kind of a leader in the field already. We leaned into community. You know, we had a tie into the podcast. We had Minda on, and then she did a book club. We started a book club. We started a mocktail club for our sober or non-drinking colleagues. We started a parent and caregiver network. And so we've really leaned into the existing community and I think are going to come out of it as an OBA community stronger than ever. And one of the reasons why we are so focused on community at the OBA is that the support and the knowledge sharing that community offers is invaluable. And we're always seeking new ways to leverage it, to empower the success of all lawyers. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your Sister Talk Leadership Academy and explain to the listeners what it is for those who don't know and whether there are principles in play in Sister Talk that could be translated into fostering a more inclusive, engaging, and affirming work environment for women of color. What are the lessons that we all want from Sister Talk? So Sister Talk, well, it's a leadership network I created because I did not, as much as we had a Black and Caribbean network in the workplace, there's still a perception at work that leadership does not include your whole self. We shy away from the stories of our lived experiences because we just haven't had a space to create that. And we feel like we'll be judged if we show our full selves or we bring our full selves to the table. So Sister Talk came out of this. I had joined so many different women groups and initiatives, but I felt it was very business card transactional. It was very like, oh, hi, I'm Carla and I'm the senior manager of blah, blah, blah. Like, but there wasn't a real connection. It was networking. It wasn't community. And I really wanted a place where I can remove my armor. So I had met a few other women, you know, racialized women on Bay Street, downtown Toronto. And I said, hey, do I have a girls night? Because I just really wanted to talk without the airs of who I am, forgetting that title for a second. And women came over to my house and I talked about what do you do when a lot of your work is riddled in shame, right? Because you know that you deserve so much more. You want to raise your hand, but you're constantly coming up against this wall. And sometimes it feels like a concrete wall because you cannot push through. And turns out that women also were struggling and they had their own story. And again, going back to the brain from a subconscious perspective, personal narratives, it drives our emotions. And I'll give you an example. If I see you across the road and you, you kind of look in my direction and I wave and I'm like, hey, Charlene, and you continued past straight, you did not even acknowledge me. Immediately, the brain tries to assess what happened and it records it as a memory so that I don't make that mistake again because that felt painful because you didn't see me. Rejection, it, it actually registers a physical pain in the brain because what the brain assumes is that you rejected me, you didn't see me. So all of a sudden now I'm, I'm creating this personal narrative. Oh, Shirley doesn't like me. Oh, what did I do wrong? Blah, blah, blah. So all the stories, we store them. And until we bring them up to our consciousness for air, they unconsciously drive our behavior at work. So from Sister Talk, what we learned is that there is so much strength and vulnerability. But again, from a cognitive perspective, we've all heard, don't bring your full self to work. You know, you can't let your armor down. Sister Talk became a space for us to explore our full humanity. Sister Talk became a place for us to put the army down and be fully human. What we learned as well is that it was a place for shared vulnerability and also which led to shared connection. And some of those women today, they have built such a strong base in terms of support. 
and friendship. There were women who were still connected, who were still friends because they met through Sister Talk. And I, I guess the biggest thing that Sister Talk gave us, what it really helped us to convert our cultural competencies into cultural confidence. And by that, I mean, as a way of exploring our stories, we're able to talk about our upbringing and where we came from, our ethnicity. We explored who we are outside of the imposed identity of race. And that led us to exploring a lot of those cultural isms that we didn't necessarily see as a, I guess you could say a plus or a win. We were able to see how we can convert that to cultural confidence because a lot of us, as we shared our stories, the story is like a window to the soul. So these are the, the few lessons we got from Sister Talk and what I took from that also. It became an incubator for us to explore. For example, when the emotional tax research came out, I brought a group of women together and we talked about it. And we talked about the stories behind that emotional tax. And what is the impact on our life at home and how we lead in our community? So this is where I also learned that, hey, a lot of my emotions are actually colonized. Because I was so on guard of, of not being the angry Black woman, I minimized my expression of self. So we also got to a place where we understood how to explore more of our authentic self, how to take some of those leadership practices that are rooted and steeped in Eurocentrism and convert them through our own ethnic and cultural language, which also helped us to really hone in our authenticity in a way that it wouldn't be used against us or in a way where we felt that we would still feel seen, heard, supported, and respected for who we are. Then I also realized that decolonizing leadership frameworks and giving racialized women more tools to understand how they can feel authentic in some of those Eurocentric-based leadership practices and examples. What I really love about Sister Talk is that I think we've kind of come full circle to the beginning of the conversation where I said, I know you, you know me, you know my family, and we've both been kind of doing this work for a long, long time. And I love that Sister Talk came about organically. And those are some of the most successful initiatives came from filling a need that you found in yourself. And it relied on like building community as really like a foil to what we weren't finding at work. But I also think that as our workplaces continue to improve, due in part to the efforts of you and your company and people like you, there still is that need for the Sister Talk Leadership Academy, places like the OBA and those community spaces. And I think that in creating those spaces, it allows women to kind of go out into the world and back into the workplace and continue to thrive. See it as kind of one big cycle, which I think is pretty awesome. It is. And also it helps us to create the new definition of success. I often remind women when I'm working with women, white women, you know, women of color, is that we have to ensure that we're showing up authentically as our full selves, again, in a way that honors that authenticity, because this is how we'll create the new definition of leadership and what professionalism looks like. Because if we're all trying to fit into that very patriarchal-based definition of success and leadership, it means that we're constantly outsourcing our belonging or assist them and for a workplace that will not refuel or in some cases reward us for that outsourcing of who we are. So to wrap up, I'm going to ask you two questions, one about what we need to do now and one about we're going to circle back to futurism, Black futurism, Indigenous futurism, futurism of great, inclusive, thriving workplaces. So first question, what is your best advice for today's workplaces? What strategies can today's leaders use right now 
in terms of representation and, of course, inclusion in C-suites and boardrooms? I would go with understanding the level of psychological safety within your teams and within your organization, because that will help organizations to understand where they are, not just on psychological safety, but where you have emotional fragility. Because when it comes to changing culture, you need the majority group to drive that culture forward. So also, yes, you need to understand the psychological safety uh, for you know, historically marginalized groups, but you also need to know the psychological safety for your white employees as well. Because, and I'm pretty sure you've heard it too, the number one thing that we're hearing from this work is that there's a lot of white fragility, or I, oh, I see emotional fragility, right? Where self-preservation comes in, people go into the fear zone, and then now they're in the inaction zone because they're prioritizing the emotional discomfort over the reality of racialized groups. So for me, if leaders prioritize psychological safety, then you will know which teams are higher than others. And what I mean by that, if you're learner safety on your department, your operations department, then you can strategically say, hey, this new inclusive training or this revamping of our values where we want to include anti-racism action or coaching tip for our managers, let's start, you know, in the Charlene Carden LLP world, let's start in the operations department with team A. So then you now understand how you're doing your culture change and shift. And then you can also measure that, again, through the feedback that you're getting nine months or a year from now, you can remeasure your psychological safety. And the first stage, which is inclusion safety, this is where you can truly get the reality of what those groups are going through, tie that back to your ERG, ensure that your ERGs are also at the decision-making table, and also majority of your focus. If your majority leaders, groups, teams in your workplace is white, majority of your work needs to be focused on your white employees because they need to be the ones taking the action. They need to be the ones leading the charge. And yes, we will mess up. Again, this is where creating a culture of reward and vulnerability is important because when folks mess up, it's not if, when they do, they can feel safe enough to come to team leader A and say, hey, you know, I had a conversation, you know, with Charlene. And I just realized that I excluded her, this language that we've been using as part of our meetings or process improvement or whatnot, we need to change it. And because you've built in that psychological safety, whether your employee identifies as white, as indigenous, as black, they can all challenge the system or the status quo within your organization with the knowledge that they will not be punished because you have done the work on a structural level to ensure that there is psychological safety if you're coming from an indigenous lens, a black lens, or even a white lens as well. So I think that would be the first place to start. Because the danger I'm seeing right now, Charlene, a lot of organizations, because of a, as a response to COVID-19 and the mental fatigue and the emotional fatigue we're all going through, they are putting mental health strategies in place. And when I ask, do you have racial and culturally diverse mental health practitioners on your list as part of your training? Is racism considered one of the factors impacting the mental health of historically marginalized groups? A lot of them are like, oh, no, we didn't think of that. And this is why, and I'm not saying psychological safety is all the answers, but it is a starting point. It's a, start. it's a starting point because it will help you to, des- to decide, especially on the challenges safety perspective, how can employees feel safe enough to challenge the status quo that will now get you to go and look at your, your fair process system, right? If you've you've read the research, you know, Black folks, Indigenous folks, we don't feel safe going to HR. What are the alternatives? 
And something as simple, like, you know, when we're working with employees, we have a list of racial and culturally diverse wellness practitioners. And majority of the folks on the employee assistant line or the workplace wellness program, Shirley, and I know it's not going to shock you, but I say it anyways, they're majority white folks. They do not have racially and culturally diverse. Something as simple as this. So when we do training um, 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 with organizations, the first thing we tell them is that, are your racially and culturally diverse wellness practitioners, is it easy for your racialized staff to access? Have you sent out an email with here all the, the information? If they don't feel safe speaking to you, have you given them alternative avenues, including somebody outside of your organization if you do not have racially and culturally diverse wellness practitioners? Because as you're going through your work of dismantling those systems of oppression, you will be causing more racial harm, not intentionally, but there is a cost to being seen and feeling seen. When you fully acknowledge my full humanity, it does something to me. And I may not have the language to explain to you what that feels like, but just know that you might be causing and you are causing more harm. So prioritize the psychological safety of these employees by making the information accessible, making it easy for them to get to. And please don't make me beg for my humanity by not having someone who looks like me because the very virtue of that you're saying and you are supporting racialization as a system that continues to oppress us. So I really hope that organizations get that. And the second thing that I would say, leaders, people leaders, C-suite leaders, we need to revamp inclusive leadership strategies, equitable leadership assessment, which was created by Dr. Julie and Peter Trevor Wilson. Trevor is the author of How to Optimize Talent Based on Human Equity. And for me, with the equitable leadership assessment, Charlene, it takes into consideration not just knowledge of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also the application of it. And it's a behavioral-based assessment that gives practical tips on what to do when it comes to leading others through the lens of human equity, meaning that you're seeing the full humanity. And with that assessment, what we have done is that we've also added an anti-racism coaching lens to it as well. So we give leaders practical tips for them to, oh, if now I've, I've gotten feedback, you know, there isn't fair process, what do I do? We tie in the psychological safety lens plus anti-racism to give them tips and tools in terms of how to navigate such uncomfortable situations. And if you are an excellent leader, it means that you are uncomfortable, you're practicing vulnerability more than the average person. So the discomfort is key. key. If you're doing this right, you're uncomfortable and you're afraid half of the time, but you don't run from it, you lean into it. So I do have another question. I've got to go to the future. <laughs> Again, on that theme of being forward thinking. We started at the OBA with my presidency, an initiative called Not Another Decade, where we're throwing our hats over the fence and we are setting an ambitious but achievable plan to really tackle inequities, overrepresentation, and systemic racism in the justice sector. It was founded on the basis of the events of 2020, not just because of what happened then, but you know, it forced us to look at all of the work that we've done as lawyers. And it, it highlighted, in spite of all this work, there's still work to be done. And so we set a target for ourselves. The initiative is unique because of the last beyond my presidency. And we really want to read different headlines. We want the headlines about our profession in 2030 to look different than they did in 2020. And so that's the marker I'm going to use for you. What do you hope that we will see in healthy, productive, inclusion-focused, vulnerability-centered workplaces 
in 2030, 10 years from now? I'm hoping that we're not seeing headlines around, you know, the numbers and the stats. But what we're seeing is how organizations, again, because through a human equity centered approach, where to invite all humans to the table, we're actually seeing an eradication of, for example, our global sustainable development goals. We're seeing poverty being eradicated. We're seeing workplaces actually aligning with the social issues that the customers they serve and the employees. We're seeing not just a dismantling, but an eradication of it. And then organizations, for example, the OBA, the OBA has now created a framework because you achieved that not another 10 years. That framework is now added to this global database of humans using our brilliance, our skills, learning from the past to create a better future. I always think of white supremacy is power over, equity is power with. And ESG goals are aligned, directly aligned. We don't need no business case to declare someone's humanity when it was a man-made creation of an ideology from colonization to capitalism. We are examining the systems in a brave way where we are not contributing towards the delineation of the environment and our climate and our culture, but we're actually working to ensuring that we make and we create a better world. And I think that this will happen, Sherlyn, because when I speak to the younger folks, when I listen to them on TikTok and I watch all of them, I'm constantly being educated. They're on it and they're not waiting for the schools to teach them. They're actually getting the education from each other and they're actually challenging. So I'm very excited for what they will also bring to the table. I think we are heading the right direction, but we need to keep the momentum on. And I need white folks to step it up, to carry the brunt of the work. Like you said, speak up. You've listened, you've learned. Part of listening is applying the knowledge of what you listen to. So continue to stumble. As Lisa Renee Hall says, stumble bravely. This is what will make you an exceptional leader. And this is how we will create a better world for the generations coming behind us. I love that. Let's all stumble bravely towards a transformative decade. And I'm sure we'll talk before then, but I definitely am as excited as you are to see what things in both of our respective fields are going to look like in 2030. And I look forward to continuing supporting you and congratulations again for your role. And I know that you will be the charge in terms of doing great things. Carlin's own battle to belong and subsequent EDI leadership have resulted in many affirming insights and invaluable lessons, chief among them the fact that no workplace outside of medieval times should call for a suit of armor. Everything in our conversation was gold, so these are merely my tip-of-the-iceberg takeaways for cultivating a culture of authenticity and inclusion. Your starting point is to recognize and appreciate the impact of lived experience on workplace identity, which means understanding the history of discrimination and erasure, the language and frameworks of exclusion, and the stereotypes that Black, Indigenous, and other racialized employees are fighting and guarding against daily. Managers should be trained in how deeply ingrained stereotypes emerge and influence interaction and contribution at work in order to counteract them. Remember Carlin's example of telling a Black female colleague that she's intimidating or too passionate when she expresses a viewpoint. If you're thinking of safety in the workplace solely in terms of physical safety, it's time to give equal weight to psychological safety, of which inclusion forms a key component. 
Inviting racialized employees to join and lend representation to a predominantly white team is not inclusion. Consider that an important part of inclusion is an opportunity to contribute to a group or project in which you're not in the minority, an experience that white employees regularly enjoy. Look at all your systems through an equity lens. And remember, as you're dismantling systems of inequity, it will take a toll, however inadvertent, on the psychological safety of employees who are feeling truly seen, heard, and respected for perhaps the first time. Offer multiple mechanisms for feedback and mental health support. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to creating a culture that makes employees feel safe to be authentic, safe to learn, and safe to speak. Carlin is focused on the lived experience of Black women and misogynoir in the workplace. However, her work underscores the need for an intersectional approach to understanding why certain comments, workplace behaviors, and policies are unacceptable and will work against advancing overall psychological safety. If someone isn't raising her hand in a discussion, a trained and informed leader will consider culture and context before deciding that employee has nothing of value to contribute. When all team members feel safe in challenging the status quo, you will hear about more of the issues and oversights and also gain the real feedback you need to address them. It is an ongoing learning process. In crafting solutions, it's useful to put language around the problems you're addressing, like the emotional tax that takes a heavy toll on Black, Indigenous, and other racialized employees, and the third bind that places an extra burden of systemically influenced fatigue and structural discrimination on women leaders of color. As an organization focused on rewriting the narrative, you should be looking at more than the trauma of historically marginalized groups in the workplace. You should also look at how white leaders became dominant. As Carlin said, we have an opportunity to look at our whole humanity, to change the culture and retain excellence. Looking at stats in isolation can help us intellectualize, but also disconnect ourselves from the real impact of racism. So lived experiences can be useful in closing the empathy gap. But remember that you're not entitled to anyone's story. Demanding that kind of sharing can be exploitive and damaging to someone's mental health. If you're looking at an all-white male management team, you don't need to hear a tale of racial trauma to identify what is the obvious problem or justify action moving forward. Many Black, Indigenous, and other racialized women are not receiving the same actionable mentorship and sponsorship that their white counterparts are. However, before you remedy this, consider that your white mentors likely learned their coaching methods from other white leaders. If they're not being trained in anti-Black racism, trauma, and psychological safety before mentoring Black employees, they should be. Listeners, when it comes to equitable leadership, understanding and implementation are equally important. As Carlin notes, if you're doing it right, you're uncomfortable half the time. So I encourage you, lean into it. Lean into that discomfort learn, and then act. Stumble bravely. 